0: Hello and welcome to the Marketing Meter podcast. My name is Joe Glover. Thank you so much for listening today. I am so grateful. And if that sighing you heard in the background there, that's my dog, Eric. He's getting very bored of me doing podcast introductions. Anyway, today is a really special podcast. Uh, we're going to be hearing from Russell Parsons, who's the editor of Marketing Week. Now, it's just one of these things that's kind of crazy and, and, and I can't quite get my head around how we've ended up going from a survey in Cambridge, all the way to running 140 events with people like Russell coming to speak at the marketing meetup. My head is just constantly blown and I'm just really grateful for everyone choosing to engage with the marketing meetup, but also for people like Russell giving up his time to come and speak to our community. I'm I'm, I'm astonished daily. Uh, Really, really uh, grateful. So thank you very much. In this talk, Russell spends his time uh, analysing the marketing industry uh, from an outsider's point of view. And I say that because even though he's got a really important part, as part of the marketing industry, as the editor of one of the the industry's largest publications, uh, he he considers himself a journalist first, which is absolutely fair. Um, But the advantage that this gives is that he's someone that can look from the outside in and sort of reflect on the type of thing that we're up to as the marketing industry uh, and the direction that we're heading in. This is going to be the first of two parts so we're going to hear uh, the talk from Russell which is about 20 minutes long and then in a separate podcast we're going to publish uh, the Q&A section because we had an extended Q&A section on the night. It was a really great talk and a real sort of seminal moment for the marketing meter. I'm really grateful for Russell for taking the time, but every one of you for listening at uh, every stage of the Marketing Meetup's journey. It's just been incredible. I'll pass over to Russell in just one moment after I've just said a couple of quick things. The first is uh, that the Marketing Meetup website is uh, live, kicking, running and just like full of so much useful stuff right now that you really should check it out. It's a phenomenal resource. And we're just like building on it day after day after day and making it better and better and better just for you. Everything we do is just for you. The other thing to do is say a huge thank you as ever to Baz from Bravo Marketing. Baz is one of my favorite human beings. He's an incredible guy, he's incredibly creative. He's just back from Stockholm, uh, recording uh, an amazing new bit of content for one of his clients. Uh, I I won't say anything more, but uh, I'm sure he'll be posting about it on his site at some point soon. So do check out Baz at bravomarketing.co.uk for everything about creativity and driving results from creative marketing. So, You didn't listen to this podcast to hear from me, you came to listen to Russell. So I'm going to pass over to him right now, and all I need to say is I hope you really enjoy this really incredible talk from Russell Parsons, the editor of Marketing Week. Thank
1: you. After that
0: positive,
1: uplifting and very generous welcome, it's my job to bum you all out (laughs) with that as our subject. Almost existential philosophical uh, subject for the evening. Um, If I could just firstly ask you all to stand up. We're going to do a bit of a... I'm joking. Sit down. It's not that kind of (laughs) thing. Phew, eh? (laughs) Okay. um, I'm going to assume a certain base knowledge of what Marketing Week is. I'm not going to bore you with facts and (coughs) figures. Uh, Joe's already given me uh, information. that I'm the seventh editor this evening. If you want to know anything else about Marketing Week, we can talk about it afterwards. Um, I've been editor for – well, it'll be six years in January, but I've been at Marketing Week for 10. Um, there are much worse gigs out there, uh, and believe me, I've done most of them in journalism. Um, I think I just cut my teeth in journalism, writing about very esoteric financial instruments, uh, writing uh, about the regulation and compliance involved in those financial instruments. So, marketing and Marketing Week, believe me, is an absolute blessing. <laughs> um, a few disclaimers before I um, go any further: I'm not. I'm a journalist. I'm not a marketer. Um, I'm not a practitioner. Now I just say that because clearly I'm a massive fraud. (laughs) You lot know what you're talking about. All I know is what I see and that's basically what I'm going to be talking about this evening. So if you lose the will to live or you think I'm talking absolute nonsense then you know catch up on your emails, do whatever it is (laughs) that you want to do. But I just thought I'd let you know that as a disclaimer. Um, I also given the very nature of Marketing Week, our uh, model generally was to talk about big brands and generally senior marketers of those brands. And that's the, the majority of the contacts that I have and the majority of time uh, I spend talking to marketers is with those people. So I generally see the world through the upper echelons of marketing. So I appreciate probably a lot of you in the room this evening work for small to mid-sized brands uh, and maybe in intermediaries or service providers. So I'm not necessarily talking from your perspective, but this is just the one that I know. So again, if you can find anything else to occupy your time and make it more practical, (laughs) please please crack on. Um, Now, uh, my final disclaimer is that I have many skills in life, but PowerPoint is uh, not (laughs) one of (laughs) them. So if I have set the bar, low enough, and I think I probably just about have, uh, I'll crack on. So, as I say, I've been at Marketing Week for about 10 years, so before we get into the real meat of this question, I thought I'd perhaps talk a little bit about some of the key moments and how they've shaped marketing as I've seen it. Now, this dates back to, I think, the autumn of 2008, and I suspect you all remember it, uh, the collapse of Lehman Brothers, which obviously set off a whole string which led to the near collapse of the entire financial system. I think if I was to identify one single thing, and that's why I've begun with the financial crash that has perhaps defined the landscape in marketing within the time that I have been reporting and analysing it. It would be that collapse. I think UK. PLC has been pretty much in a perpetual state of uncertainty ever since. I'm not a geopolitical expert or indeed uh, much of an expert in anything other than perhaps marketing. But uh, you know, it, it led to austerity. It, some would perhaps draw the line between that and the Brexit referendum or the election. Of Trump, that's not what we're going to get into. It's not that kind of evening this evening. But it's a toxic brew. Now, uh, the five crash definitely had a long-lasting effect on business and marketer, (coughs) marketing. Sorry, being a significant spender of cash that would be otherwise returned to shareholders or partners and a conduit for customer sentiment in an organisation has been or was on the back of that spun around. Uh, the appetite for risk and the relationship a marketer has with its peers became very different. and Let me explain why. Firstly, uh, it led to diminishing trust. Now you might have seen this stat, it's probably the most famous but there's countless others that are similar and speak to the same thing. So Fournay's marketing group back in 2012 did a study which found, well, you can read, I don't need to read it out to you, but it's an indication that from, and there's one of many from numerous sources, that there was a lack of trust in the, in the value of marketers from the C-suite. Um, it's perhaps the starking, starkest and it's probably the most famous. Uh, And the reason uh, that was given that the marketers are too disconnected from short, medium and long-term realities of their companies. That was essentially the reason. (coughs) And then just a couple of years after that, we did a study of our own uh, and we asked finance directors and we found the majority of those uh, uh, said that marketers were unable to quantify the return on investment that their organisation receives from its marketing spend. The message, I suppose, was that you're not showing us what you need or what we need uh, and you're not showing us what you do and why you need the investment that you're calling for. Uh, and perhaps as a result, there's a greater demand for accountability. <coughs> um, this. Uh, this is not going to be a lesson in zeros based budget budgeting, but that's just one example of this quest and this demand for greater accountability. If nobody knows what ZBB is, um, it, forgive the elementary uh, lesson, but it means essentially that all marketing spend needs to be justified before budgets are allocated. And that's on the rise. This is just two examples, and there are countless more from big organisations that are moving to this. Uh, more efficiency and indeed more accountability has been demanded of marketers and uh, this is just one example. Now, uh, the third impact of the financial crash um, is short-termism. And in these straightened times, it's become a particularly apparent. Uh, <clears throat> you can see from this uh, chart on the left uh, that short-term thinking has been on the rise. This is, uh, if ever, does everybody know the work of Les Binet and Peter Field, um, that's, that's one chart of many that they've uh, produced which shows that short-term thinking and short-termism has been on the rise. And as, as you can see, you can th- sort of chokes it back and it becomes very stark and very precipitous from the financial crash onwards. Short-termism, I suppose, is ROI-based, bottom of the funnel activity Um, demonstrated in a much more amusing and palatable way from the great Tom Fishburne, the Mark Tunis on the right hand side um, in his own inimitable fashion. Um, Brand building essentially what both of these things are demonstrating is being sidelined in favour of performance as people search for the cost efficient at scale solutions and this has been hastened. By digital and the ability to ostensibly attribute and attribute relatively uh, quickly and straightforwardly uh, to reach people in more efficient ways, but not necessarily effective ones. Now that brings me on to uh, two of the other things that have perhaps defined my ten years at Marketing Week. Uh, the rise of digital, and I suppose I mean digital, the use of digital media in particular. This is just a snapshot, um, but you could take these snapshots at every, any given year over that period and you would find the same thing. I mean, the headline essentially is digital is growing really quickly and um, it's growing as well at the expense of other channels. I'll just take a, a moment to dwell on that might be a statement of the screaming obvious, but, you know, it's worth looking at for a moment. I mean, digital media channels are indeed propelling the growth in advertising, as you can see from these stats. Um, And as you can see from here as well. Uh, Just ignore this, by the way. (laughs) This was me having no clue whatsoever. (laughs) I was telling uh, Joe earlier on. I was doing this um, on Sunday at home, and uh, my daughter, who's eight years old, um, jumped on my laptop after me, and said, "Can I do a PowerPoint presentation?" And she was doing one about her family and started to pull out, you know, PowerPoint animation and all of these wonderful <laughs> things, and I was just quietly weeping in the corner at my <laughs> inadequacy. Anyway. So you can see from here we're almost at a a tipping point from traditional uh, to digital uh, media channels. (coughs) Uh, I mean this is not me bashing digital um, and indeed you can build brands on platforms and channels other than uh, traditional media uh, but at the same time obviously When you are operating at the bottom of that funnel, you are operating almost exclusively on tactical execution stuff, display, paid search, etc. And that's at the expense of anything more strategic, anything more long-term, then you've got a problem. You've got a problem of effectiveness there. Now, the third thing, which has certainly been a major topic and a continuing topic since I joined Marketing Week is data. I think it began as big, and then it got smart, and then it got intelligent, and there's probably further iterations that I'm not aware of. But (laughs) data clearly, uh, or the omniscient uh, and the panoply of different data points that are available is as a result of digital media um, and many other things, but primarily that. Uh, And people got very excited, very giddy with possibility. There was a billion data points, but I suppose the question I'm asking now is whether or not there's any more insight uh, than there used to be. um, It's—I mean, the uh, there is no shortage of detractors, perhaps, um, when it comes to data. Um, but it's worth listening to some of these people, whether or not it be Mark, who's obviously a colleague of mine, or people like Sir John Hegarty. Um, there is a question over whether or not data and digital have been or become colossal distractions. Just take a moment to dwell on some of that, if not for any uh, other reason other than to marvel at Mark's brilliant way wordplay in creating the spreadsheet jockeys as as an actual job. (laughs) Now there's a slight causation correlation thing going on in terms of my theory here but there's no doubt or at least if you're going to take Binet and Fields uh, research as read that we are looking at effectiveness becoming the consequence of both short-term thinking, uh, but also perhaps playing at instant returns and instant wins. And there is a question mark over whether or not data and digital is at the root of that. And again, further illustration here short-termism boosts return on market investment, but not profit growth. All of these uh, charts are available, I think, by the IPA. I think I just copied and pasted them over there, but there's more coherent and cogent ways to adapt. So, I mean, before I go on to these, I mean, mean, does all of this speak to a, a department lacking the trust of the board? Um, or or those in control of the purse strings? I think these are all questions that we ask a lot on Marketing Week. Uh, Is this the uh, the failure of marketers to communicate their worth and their value? Or is it the fault of ignorant colleagues who fail to understand and paint marketers into a corner in terms of what they do and what they can contribute? Is the game of marketing rigged? Do legacy perceptions of marketers being the last in line, the legacy legacy perception of them being executors of other people's strategy still live on? It's a cliché, but I hear it all the time. Is marketing still the colouring in department? Or has the promise of data and digital channels inadvertently pushed marketers into a data-driven ghetto where short-termism pervades? (laughs) I think the answer is probably a little bit of everything. Uh, what is clear though is that something uh, does need to be done and the good news, or at least my analysis anyway, is that there's plenty that can be done. So I'll just take a moment to talk about some of those things that you can do or that others are doing by means of best practice to address some of these challenges. Now. The first thing is don't panic. Stop predicting Armageddon. We're as guilty as any other marketing title of giving people the platform to say that everything that you've known or ever known is totally wrong and if you don't rip up your entire guidelines towards how to do marketing, then somehow you're in dereliction of duty. Um, there's a sort of constant, certainly amongst the senior marketers at large companies, almost a perpetual state, I talked about uncertainty, a perpetual state of anxiety in marketing that you're at risk of disruption at any minute, that you, can, you know, your entire way of doing business can be totally disrupted and totally halted at any given moment. And I think, You know, this kind of does lead to this sort of sense of panic and anxiety that some of these headlines do illustrate. Everything's changing. The pace of change is only going to get faster and you have to constantly keep running just to keep up. Um, We've got this kind of weird obsession with everything is dead. (laughs) I mean, you can see here and, you know, know, again, we're as guilty as anybody here of giving people the platform and giving people the oxygen to say that everything is dead. And of course, if I'm being particularly sceptical, as is my right as a journalist, then clearly there's a lot of vested interest in saying that everything is wrong with what everything you've ever done. And here we have a silver bullet solution to make it all better. Thank you very much. But you know, at the same time as there is a million new service providers to offer that serv- uh, to the silver bullet solution, there's no shortage of respected marketing commentators and marketing practitioners who are very keen on telling you everything is dead. Um, Now, it's not quite as stark as this, but I suppose what I would probably say is there isn't as much change in marketing as people often would lead you to believe. I mean, the tools of execution have definitely changed. I mean, that much is apparent. The way that you operate, particularly digitally, is a million miles from what you might have imagined 10 years ago in terms of some of the platforms that you're probably using to great effect now. You wouldn't even they wouldn't have even existed five years ago. But have the fundamental tenets of marketing changed that much? I would argue not. I don't think that they have. Um, the means to orientate around customers, and market, or the necessity to set strategy, <coughs> strategies, to your objectives in line with business goals, it's probably the same as it ever was. There's, there's very little difference. So with that in mind, it's probably Time to remind myself what we were going to deal with next. Get back to basics. That's the one. Um, I mean, as I said a moment ago, I mean the, the very the, the business of sort of finding about your customer and about where you stand and place yourself in the market, delivering a compelling positioning. The job of segmenting and targeting, um, communication and media and great creative and indeed selling stuff. I mean, it's not a million miles away from it ever was. It's just that there are many more ways to reach and engage with people than there uh, ever have been before. Um, There's also this sort of constant need to rebrand and reimagine and reimagine the basics as well and indeed reimagine the job of marketing itself. So, customer focus has become customer centricity. And forgive anybody who puts customer centricity on their LinkedIn profile as a virtue. And I'm sorry in advance about what I'm going to say, but it also it just, con- just instantly leaves me sort of rolling my eyes and thinking, well, if you weren't customer centric before then what the hell are you doing as a marketer? It, it's not a new thing or it shouldn't be a new thing. Um, p- positioning has become purpose. Or being meaningfully different in a world where people demand you to be more than just a product with a function and a service. Amorphous masses of demographics, based target market. Uh, uh, sorry, based target market, markets are used instead of tight targets as well. Uh, Millennials, Gen Z, you all know the list. Uh, meanwhile, we're putting communication uh, before we have considered any kind of strategic imperative. Um, None of this is anything other than basics, uh, but in the work of the financial crashes, as we discussed, as I talked about, and the subsequent increase in demands from colleagues and internal stakeholders, the explosion of data and the giddy sense of possibility, it's time, I would argue, to go back to the future. Um, marketing hasn't changed, but I believe marketers have. And their perception of it has as well, and therefore the perception of uh, stakeholders and colleagues has uh, along with it. Let me just show you the quote that I gave you a, a little hint of a moment ago. I mean, this was written in 1967. I had the great pleasure of uh, interviewing Philip Kotler just uh, probably only about five or six weeks ago. Um, and uh, for a man of his age, which is probably very ageist of me to even make that acknowledgement. He's ridiculously cogent. Um, he's not stuck in the mud at all. But this is what he wrote in, um, I think is the first edition of Marketing Management. I think it was 1967. Now, I don't believe, I mean again, back to my disclaimer at the beginning, I'm not a practitioner, but is that any different to what you do now? But there would be many in marketing, many people perhaps, as I say, with vested interest that would suggest to you that this is no longer fit for purpose. But it seems to me to be a pretty coherent guideline and as a starting point for marketing. I keep only go back here. So have the right conversations. I mean, this one's key. And I think this comes down to the way that success has been framed or should be framed. ROI or return on marketing investment Is a way and can be a sensible way to measure success Uh, but it shouldn't be the only way that you do so. If it is then it will invariably push you down a short term pursuit of attribution which might be a tempting way to receive instant gratification and to demonstrate to your boss very easily and quickly that you're doing the right thing but it might not be the right thing ultimately and in the long term to do. Uh, Neither though should you move too far away from hard metrics. You shouldn't talk too much about brand love, or equity, or any equally other esoteric and insulin measures of success. Um, Smart companies uh, such as Diageo, for example, have successfully framed the conversation. They recognize ROI as one measure of importance in service to driving gross profit in particular, but they have switched the conversation to the outcome of marketers asked and they're asked marketers are asked to think about four or five measures that really matter to the business and to their brands in driving that performance. I mentioned it earlier on, but it's about determining what your business goals are, then conceiving strategic objectives for your marketing activity that are in line with those business goals. You also need to think about objective and not process. Uh, The explosion in marketing technology vendors, and again apologies if anybody works in MarTech here. Um, It's a necessary addition in many ways in terms of data management um, and making sense of that in this new age that we live in. But in so many ways it complicates matters as well. If you think objective and not process, and don't get bogged down in technology. The MarTech maze, as it's been described to me recently, in managing data, you've got to first ask what am I trying to achieve, not about how I'm going to how I'm gonna get there, but what I'm actually trying to achieve. And that's what I mean about having the right conversations. If you think back to the uh, statistic, and I've seen many more recently Uh, that I showed you earlier on that speak to the same thing about mistrust and (coughs) diminishing trust in marketers. It's because we're not framing marketing in the right way. And it's as a result of that things still dog marketing in regards to perceptions of being communicators, of being colouring in departments as we talked about earlier and everybody had a little laugh at but it's still there, believe me, it's still there. Now. I said, "Focus on reality, not perception. Um, I don't know about you. I, I moved down from Leeds, Dick Whittington style, you know almost 20 years ago, and fully immersed myself in the wonderful metropolitan bubble that London is. and I, I you know I'm in no hurry to go back to the provinces. I've been there. I don't need to go back again. <laughs> However, how many people live in London here? Oh, most of you okay um, I suppose I just asked that question because there's clearly a massive disconnect between the perception of what customers do, how they think, how they feel, and what they actually do. And I don't know if it's confined just to London, I think it's probably seen and echoed elsewhere in the country. And this isn't necessarily just the problem of agencies, but I think it's particularly acute in media agencies, those that plan and buy media. Uh, there was a study which I will uh, put up a sample of, uh, done by uh, Ubiquity, uh, where they asked 68 marketing leaders and 48 agency executives to rank what they thought were the most effective media against several measures. Salience, emotion, targeting, and ROI, just to name a few of them. And then they source data from a variety of sources to check what the actual effectiveness across, is across the same. And it just shows how wrong people can be and how their prejudice is um, in terms of, you know, their, their customer orientation is perhaps limited to what their mates are doing or what the people that they work next to in the office are doing and using. You can see how many digital channels in particular appear high on the right. Uh, but not necessarily on the left. I mean, It turns out everybody's not sort of spending all of their time on TikTok or whatever else <laughs> is the zeitgeist. Um, I mean, just finally, I think the final to-do list was to be proud of what you do. Um, I think going back to where I began at the beginning, uh, talking about the financial crest. It had a huge impact on this pull between efficiency and effectiveness that I've talked about, but I think it also had a sort of slightly and very unexpected impact. And it it almost gave rise, I think, to to brand purpose. Now, I'm, I'm not as eloquent or as mean about brand purpose as some of my contributors, particularly Mark Ritson is. I think there is definitely, when it's authentic, And it's definitely built into what you actually do not what you actually say about what you do. It's perfectly legitimate and absolutely core to what you do. Um, But at the same time as there's been this necessary belt tightening and this over-eagerness to demonstrate efficiency, (coughs) certainly with big brands there's been this kind of splurging of money on activity that is almost of the antithesis of that belt tightening um, and I think it does strangely go back to the financial crisis I mean I, I was when I was uh, preparing this the other day I was trying to think about because I worked in the city of London does anyone remember like the Occupy movement that took over the city um, and then about the same time there was an organization called UK Uncut which would um, hole up at places like Vodafone and call them out for not paying the requisite and proper amount of corporation tax that they should have. Now, they themselves, I don't think, had any lasting impact despite the fact that there is general greater awareness about these things. But I think a lot of people, particularly in marketing, sort of looked at those movements, felt that sentiment and decided almost to be ultimate I mean almost apologetic about what they do that somehow marketing wasn't about generating demand and satisfying that demand aka selling stuff you had to be a little bit more than selling stuff as well and you know as I said to you at the beginning when I started to talk about this it's fine to have a purpose but you also need to have a profit as well. I mean, I was at a recent conference, um, and this was a major conference, not the Festival of Marketing that we run, but another one. And uh, there was a, a line of senior marketers uh, talking about their brand purpose, and somebody at the back, who I assume also because of the nature of the conference, it was the WFA, the World Federation of Advertisers, so we're talking big hitters here. Sort of of meekly put their hand up. And I I don't think that they were taking the piss. They just said, It's okay that we still sell stuff to people, isn't it? And and it was quite, you know, they almost all looked at each other aghast that there was a (coughs) merest suggestion that they were supposed to be in the business of selling stuff. Um, I just want to, this, I mean, Byron Sharp is uh, a bit of a Marmite figure. Uh, But I've always loved this uh, as illustration of what I just said. I mean, I would interpret what he's saying basically uh, as what I headlined this subsection as, which is be proud of what you do. Um, you don't need to run away from it. And if you do so, then that's going to be the expense of those key relationships that you have internally as well. I and mean, it's been all over the place this year, this almost kind of self-loathing, particularly in advertising. I don't know if anybody saw the um, or noted the... Uh, well, there was two great examples this year. Um, the Oasis, the, you know, the uh, not the mid-90s uh, Mancunian pop group, but the Coca-Cola-owned soft drink um, ran a huge campaign over the summer, where they essentially declared, "We know you hate advertising, um, and we know that you do so much that we're going to stop advertising as long as you buy enough Oasis." And it's ridiculous and it's totally flawed. And of course, they're going to continue to advertise and make some other ridiculous claim. But it's almost like they're saying, we don't like what we do. We know you don't like what we do. So you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And it's just this horrible, creeping self-loathing that I think needs to disappear. And I think this uh, quote from Byron Sharp, it's uh, it's perfectly um, illustrative of that.
0: So anyway.
1: That's pretty much all that i wanted to say um i painted a rather gloomy picture but there's plenty of challenges of course there are um, and there's plenty of ways but there is plenty of ways that marketing and marketing um, marketers can be more effective um, and despite all of that my 10 years has been an absolute blessing and i really enjoyed working reporting and analysing marketing. So, you know, in the way that they might have concluded crime Watch, don't have nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. That's everything.